All right, David. Here we are. What? What is up, Jonathan? Back again. Is Back this going to be the last episode of our season? I think it might be. Um, you know, pending. Well, I mean, we have a lot of summer travels. I think yeah. you and I, and so. I mean, it is be... only March. That's not really summer yet, is it? <laughs> well, if you're in Toronto, like I am, <laughs> we start summer break in a week and a half. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. we've still got so, a couple of weeks. Yeah, so I think uh, we can call it here, and then we can pick this up. Maybe we can do like a check-in thing, maybe in the middle of May or in the middle of yep. July, um, just to not leave our tens of fans. You know. <laughs> yeah, a handful of people that <laughs> listen to a couple of minutes here and there. The faithful few. <laughs> The faithful remnant. <laughs> <laughs> the few, the proud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that sounds good. I like that. You know what I realized, though, as I often edit this show uh, after we record, we tend to re- begin every episode and end every episode the same way. <laughs> yeah. How's that? We always begin every episode with like, well, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we, uh-huh. and we always end every episode with, all right, man, peace. I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. Is that so, bad? That's kind of our shtick. Yeah, I don't mind that. Sometimes we just kind of come to the end and it's a little surprising. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you ever had that when somebody's speaking and they just stop? <laughs> Jonathan, you don't realize that I talk to you and I... Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is a general motif in my, okay. in my relationship with you. <laughs> Not that they just stop, but like... They're surprised by the end of their, of their sentence. Oh, uh, <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah, it's like, oh, that was there. It is. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a thing. People do mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently we do too. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. So yeah, let's call this the last episode of the season. You know, and of course, seasons are pretty artificial. So <laughs> we'll see how the. At the yeah. end of the season, how strict we are with that. But yeah, we're yeah. just getting ready for summer break and final exams and things like that. Yeah, I just turned in my my big comprehensive thesis paper. Ooh, how long is that? It is 50 pages. David, how can you even write anything for 20 pages, let alone 50 pages? <laughs> well, as listener... As listener of this show would attest to, I am not one who suffers from not knowing how to use my words. Like how to, <laughs> mm-hmm. like I, oft, I often know how to speak, even if I'm not necessarily saying much of value. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the paper, the paper started out pretty, pretty difficult, uh, and but once I breached like the 25 page mark, it was like an unstoppable stream of words that. Yeah. Hmm. Just took me up to about sixty pages, and then eventually I had to stop because I had to get it down to fifty. And then I spent a few weeks whittling it down. Most recently, I was at fifty-six pages at the beginning of this week. Yeah, on Sunday I was at fifty-six, and I wanted to turn it in today, and it needed to be fifty. So mm. I spent I spent the last two <laughs> days cutting six pages. Yeah, was that difficult? Well, actually, so it's it's a very refreshing process. To I don't know about you, but I find that there is something interesting that happens between high school and college and then college and grad school. For high school kids and some undergrad people, uh, it tends to be that like page limits are like minimums, like they're ways of getting people to write more because kids are going to write less. So when you tell a kid, I want you to write a 10-page paper, that means they're not going to be able to write more than six. So you got to challenge them to write more. Yeah. In grad school, they're like upper limits. They're like, you cannot go past this because we tend right. to be more verbose. 
Right. Um, so yeah, so for me, writing that much wasn't that difficult, but then there's something fun too that happens with the, the, the revision process. Yeah. Uh, now that I'm well, that's when you really get to nail down some of your ideas. Yeah, but really frankly, like them. in high school and college, I didn't really spend any time in the revi- revising process. I would normally just write the papers the morning they were due and just turn yeah. them in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like this paper isn't really due for another couple of weeks and I turned it in today, but I spent some time revising it. And honestly, like even after I did my initial edits, I submitted it to my mentor. She gave me some feedback. I adapted her feedback. And even after all of that, I did another read through and I cut and added so much. Like every Mm -hmm. revision process has a new batch of edits that are unexpected. Um, But no, I was was able to cut off six, making a a few changes to some of the formatting to help me, but not anything substantial. Yeah. Are you able to share anything about your paper before it's officially graded or anything like that? Yeah, I think I can. I the the grading process is going to be a defense. So I'm going to sit in front of a board who's read my paper and they're going to ask me questions about it. Yeah. Um like we did in philosophy. Yeah. So the the assignment here is that we have to take two areas of systematic theology, so things like sacraments or christology or trinity or um anthropology or sin and grace or eschatology. Take two of those areas and write a sort of synthesis of theology um, through the lens of some pastoral experience as your starting point. Yeah. Um, and then you also have to, ad- it's a very artificial assignment. It's, you kind of have to cobble, to, cobble together <laughs> yeah. a few things. Oh, so like, I mean, that's kind of the, that has yeah. to be. Yeah. And then there's also like an ecumenism section and an ethics section that you have to write. Um, so this is what I did in a nutshell. I decided to take my experience I don't know about you, but I've gotten really into spiritual direction of doing spiritual direction. Uh-huh. Um, have you gotten a chance to do much of that? Not a lot. I do a little bit here and there. Um, yeah. So la- last summer, I think we both did a practicum on mm-hmm. spiritual direction. And mine uh, got me really thinking about this ministry as a very worthwhile uh, ministry that we offer. Um, anyway, so this paper started as a reflection on those experiences of being a spiritual director. and what I said in the paper was that my experience has led me to believe that many people struggle with a basic question, and that is the question of freedom and what does it mean to be free and how to struggle with those things that ensnare us. You know, so like often people are wrestling with life choices because they don't feel free to follow God's will or they're feeling stuck at work or they're struggling with a sin or a vice or something like that. Um, so I, so I wanted to reflect on what does it mean to experience freedom? Yeah. And that was the question that got me started. So based on my pastoral experience, I want to know what does it mean to be free? Hmm. Are we? I th- uh, yeah, well, <laughs> it depends on what we mean by freedom, you know, yeah. and um, I defined freedom according to the spiritual exercises. I wanted to look at freedom. Um, and so the basic question of the paper is what is freedom according to Ignatius mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the spiritual exercises um, of St. Ignatius? And based off of that text, I concluded that there are two aspects of freedom. One is a freedom from disordered affections or disordered desires or, you know, bad desires, a freedom from that. Yeah. But then there's the other aspect of freedom, which is a freedom for discipleship. Yeah. You know, an an availability to be sent on mission. Right. Right. Did you see this whole kerfuffle over this (laughs) (laughs) this New York Times article that wrote about God making 
fear or violence I, or something like that. I didn't. Did you? I didn't actually read the thing, but I saw <laughs> a lot of people commenting on it on Twitter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Saying, like, this is f- like freshman in college philosophy 101 questions yeah, that are yeah. promptly uh, put down because they're kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think I remember now. It was something like, "If God is omniscient, yeah, then that means that God knows evil, right. which is a contradiction of God's goodness. Because right. if God knows evil, then how can He be all good?" Right, right, right. Yeah, and so it, you know, it for me at least, I I think it kind of falls into that freedom question. Like people struggle with, are we really free? You know, because there's so much evil and suffering in the world. Hmm. Um, you know, and we say that God is all knowing and all good and all and created all of this so why would he create so much evil in the world so we're only we're only free to be robots who are you know predetermined to do either good or bad right and i think a lot of people think of god and of religion in those kind of extreme terms which is really unfortunate because like that's, uh like totally that, wrong. I, either either there is no God or I am not free. Those yeah. are my only two yeah, options. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that was uh, Lex Luthor's claim in BVS. Remember? Oh yeah, yeah. What did he? How did he phrase it? Either God is all good. Uh huh. What is it? Or he's all powerful. He cannot be both. Right. Something like that. Yeah, I think that's it. Because he was like, either God is omnipotent or he's all good. But anything that's omnipotent cannot be all good because right. power itself is evil. Right. 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 And so yeah. he 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 argued against Superman and saying, "If you are all powerful, then you must you can be corrupted, right? And you cannot be good." Yeah, I mean, Lex Luthor is not wrong. <laughs> like, well, like, yeah, like there's there's in in the sense of he's wrong clearly, but like there's something <laughs> true in his error. Well, um, that he can be corrupted, and that is absolutely true. Yeah, and he takes it too far, which is to say that nothing that is powerful, right. that power in itself is is right. evil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in the paper, I, I treat the question of freedom from disordered affection and, you know, talking about what it means to be detached from objects, but also to have a rehabilitated will from like concupiscent desire. Like we uh-huh. struggle to do the good because we have been affected by original sin. And so what does it mean to be inclined towards evil and how does that keep us from choosing the good? And yeah. And then I talk a lot about like following Christ as part of our freedom is listening to the call of Christ and uh, going and saying yes in the election um, yeah. of our state of life that you're not going to be free until you follow Christ. Like there right. is the true, true experience of freedom is, is discipleship. That's what yeah. it means to be free. Yeah. And you know, the scriptures are full of, of these, these moments where God offers through his prophets or whomever, basically offers a choice to his people. Hmm. You either follow me and uh, or you don't, you know, either do it or you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so often we see in the scriptures, we see people choosing their own power, their own authority, their own, et cetera, over that of God. Right. And it leads to, it leads to their destruction. Yeah. And to their, to their demise. Um, I mean, this is, this becomes kind of a trope in literature, right? It's that like when you grasp at power, the grasping of power ultimately becomes your demise. Right. 
This is where you insert a Lord of the Rings reference, sort of obligatory. <laughs> oh, no, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> but actually, I was going to go and, and talk about uh, Genesis first, because you know, you know that I love the book of Genesis. I love myth coming from the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really unfortunate that people aren't able to see those first 11 chapters of Genesis as like in like a in a more holistic, even though, okay, so they're not, they weren't written, you know, all at the same time, blah, 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 blah. But there's a story being told there of what happens when you choose your own pride over the generosity of God, Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you see the consequences of that in Cain and Abel, Hmm. and then in Lamech and all of these people. Like immediately afterward. Yeah. And what what is the consequence of choosing our own, of choosing that over the love of God? The flood, Death. total total destruction. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so the flood isn't so much a punishment, I think, as this is just what happens when you reject God's goodness, hmm. <laughs> destruction. Hmm. Uh, and we see that played out in literature, you know, throughout throughout the ages. Um, right, where where the villain the villain is destroyed on his own. He destroys yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah. evil is is self destructive. Mm-hmm. Because it's always consuming; it's it consumes itself eventually. Right, right. What's an example from literature that you can call to mind? Well, like the I mean, the Lord of the Rings is is one of the better better ones that it's <laughs> the heroes fail at the crack of doom, hmm. uh, and it's only through the folly of evil and selfishness that the ring falls to its destruction. Through Smeagol, yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I think we're beyond spoilers for that. <laughs> we've, we've passed the threshold. Yeah. There's uh, a great irony, I guess, at the end of that story, because there's there is there's still I mean that's Gandalf's words, right? That there's still a place for Gollum yes. in this story. You yes. That somehow in God's omniscience and God's providence that even Satan has a role to play for good. Yeah, well, I mean, and go back to in the Silmarillion, the the story of creation, the devil character kept, um, Melkor? kept intru- yeah, Melkor kept introducing dissonance and discord into the harmony of creation, mm. and Iluvatar didn't stop and start over. He created a new harmony that incorporated these elements. Sure. Yeah. 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 So you don't, you don't, again, you don't fight evil with evil. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. just being evil. You find a way to transform it into its original goodness. Hmm. Because Lewis was really smart, I think, and in his space trilogy, he talked about evil as being um, bent goodness. Like hmm. in the celestial language, there wasn't a word for evil, and the closest thing that he could come to was bent. Uh, because when when we look at, and this goes back to that New York times thing. When we look at like evil, it's always a deprivation of good. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't stand on its own. Right. Right. So, huh? Well, uh, you reminded me. So like one of the things I mentioned in my paper was, you know, in Aristotle's conception of virtue, uh, part of striking virtue is striking a balance between, uh, you know, contra contravening vices, you know, so like right, right. a deficiency of courage is cowardice, but an excess of courage is, you know, a hot headedness or something. Right. Um, right. And your will, your affect could be bent one yes, way yes, yes. or the other. Um, and for Aristotle, 
the practice of virtue is the process of bending your will back toward the good. Yep. yep. Um, and so, you know, the, the aspect of freedom that I wanted to focus on in the first respect, which is the freedom from disordered desire, is finding, finding, like finding in oneself the ability and cultivating the ability of retuning the affect toward the good, you know, so overcoming concupiscence, which, you know, is the will being bent towards evil. So bending yeah. it back. Right, um, right, right. You know, and that's through where grace, I, of course, it's not through just, you know, the freedom of the will, but it's through through the grace of God to be able to do that. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's both precisely both of those. You know, it's when we look at something like, okay, what is our greatest commandment? To love God with all our hearts, minds, and bodies, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Mm-hmm. So our greatest commandment, that for which we were created to do, is to love, which yeah. is a giving, a giving of yourself, um, a free gift of yourself, which is making a choice, a good and free election, to go back to Ignatian terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this, this, um, so our, our, our whole existence is based on freedom because we have to choose love. Yeah, yeah. And if we don't choose love, then we're not acting in in freedom. Therefore, so, you know. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I I say in the paper that I thought was really cool is that um, you can understand human freedom in two ways. One is uh, to be self possessed. So, like we experience freedom because we are uh, like autonomous. That there's a a self possession that we have. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you sort of hold yourself in existence. Like that's true. There's a you have agency. Um, you can do things on your own. Like there's freedom in that respect. Um, but there's also a different respect, which is that you're also a self-determining being. That you you have agency to act in the world in such a way that you know creates your own destiny. Um, and one thing that I found interesting is in some of the reading that I was doing is that one of the authors that I I, would, I like to read on this, he was saying the the perfection of both of those aspects, though. If we say that there is a perfection of your freedom of autonomy um, in God, so if the human person finds their fulfillment in God, yeah. well, if you have it by nature to be self-possessed as an expression of freedom, if that expression of freedom is going to find its fulfillment in God, then what would that look like? Well, it's precisely what you just said, that self-possession is perfected in self-offering. Right, right. So like why be possessed of yourself? Why self-possess? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. hold yourself? Well, precisely so that you can give yourself away. Yeah. And, you know, and in that there's perfection. Right. Um, and the same thing could be said about the second aspect, which is if I am free because I'm able to make my own destiny, okay, that's good. But then how is that perfected in in God? Well, is when I submit that agency to obedience and being mm-hmm. given a mission by Christ. And then right. I am I am free because my process of self-determination is being guided by his will. Yeah. There's this really great quote um by Lewis. I think it's in The Great Divorce where he says in the end there are two types of people. Those who say to God thy will be done mm. and and those to whom God says thy will be done. Yeah, that's good. And that's the that's... difference between the saved and the damned. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, you know, I was really surprised when I wrote this paper about how much I like. I I was surprised to see how much I quoted from Ratzinger. I didn't mm. Ex- mm. I didn't expect to quote Ratzinger very much. 
and I ended up <laughs> I ended up finding a lot of Ratzinger useful, yeah. especially uh, my whole section on Christology. I just read excerpts mm-hmm. from each of the volumes of his Jesus of Nazareth series, and uh, I don't know, it was just super super helpful uh, yeah. using using his stuff. Yeah, um, well, and he talks a lot about freedom in his eschatology book too. Oh, does he? Mm-hmm. Do you remember I mean, much? Th- well, that's where that great um, that quote that I throw around all the time comes from. Where he said, uh, "Heaven is all about freedom, so much so that the, the damned will their own damnation." Huh. Wow. Wow, that's good. That's really good. I should read that. It's actually sitting on my bookshelf. I, <laughs> I got, I got it. I got it for the sake of this paper, but I never got around to reading it. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I mean, it's so good. <laughs> my bibliography was already two and a half pages, and so I needed to, <laughs> I needed to tone it down. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's weird having this problem where I'm writing too much. Like I didn't uh-huh. used to have this problem. Yeah, you know? I still don't I, have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so wait, I have something that I want to. I, I just I'm looking at my bookshelf. Uh-huh. So right next to my eschatology book is <laughs> is a book that I wanted to tell you that I got. And I forgot to tell you this. So remember last week or the week before we were talking about audiobooks. Uh huh. Do you remember that conversation? Uh, how do you think they're better? Oh well, they're awesome, certainly. But remember, I'm reading this. I'm reading this. I was oh yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. This how long? How the length of of a 900 page book? Oh yeah. Do you remember how long it was? It was like 40 hours. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if you believe me, but I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> I finished the thing, and it was so good, so good. Um, but the the struggle that I've had with my audiobooks is that I certainly find that fiction is the best. Is the best type of book for audiobooks by far. Uh-huh. Um, so I just spent a few audible credits and getting some more books and I just started listening to Moby Dick um, yesterday, which has been really good. Um, anyway, long story short, I wanted to mention to you, I've been struggling with what to do with myself while I listen to books um, because I can walk to school and that's helpful because I can spend time listening. But if I'm just like in my room, like what do I do with myself while I'm listening? Like my hands are kind of restless. <laughs> um, Idle hands. It, yeah, idle hands. And then also, like, I think the bigger problem is my eyes. Like, my eyes don't know mm. what to look at while I'm listening. Um, so I figured out the best activity for me to do while listening to an audiobook. Coloring book. I thought about that. I did think about that. And I didn't go that route, but it's similar. I realized that, unlike you, I'm not an artist. So <laughs> that's, I, I don't know how to draw. However, uh-huh. one thing that I do like, I really like handwriting <laughs> mm. um so i bought myself a calligraphy book Ooh. uh and i decided to take up calligraphy uh because we also had a conversation a couple weeks ago about like having something to do with my hands uh-huh. um i don't know if you remember that when we were talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. like um having something to do with your hands is important for like focus and right. uh detachment from digital things when we talked about digital minimal- yeah. minimalism well it's a way of expressing not only expressing creativity but like physical energy like yeah getting out yeah, and yeah. doing something yeah, so yeah. I bought this. It's a. It's called the Calligrapher's Bible, and it has over a hundred different alphabets um, in script. And yeah, I've just been working my way through it and learning how to how to script. I need to buy myself some more pens. Um, but anyway, it's sitting right there, and I, I forgot to tell you about it. Nice. You like it? I love it. You've never gotten into calligraphy, have no, you? No. More of a yeah, painter. yeah, yeah. I would like to, and you know, there, I did. Ugh. Let's take a step back. Slow down. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was working on this painting, and it had like a sign in it, 
And those words gave me so much trouble Hmm. just because, well, I don't know why I just suck at doing lettering. Hmm. Uh, So I would, I would like to be able to do it well. Yeah. And maybe that's, maybe that's a a sign for me to focus more on that. It's cool. And the reason I, the reason I picked it up is because I realized while I was listening to this book and one of the guys in the house needed me to, he saw that I have pretty decent handwriting and he said if I could address the envelopes for his ordination invitations. <laughs> um, and I said, sure, that sounds fine. And so I started doing it while listening to my book and it was mm. perfect because it was a mindless task, just yeah. handwriting. Yeah. And I was able to listen to the book without getting distracted. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, when they find out that you and I like to listen to long form podcasts and audiobooks and things like that, a common response seems to be, how do you find the time for that? <laughs> yeah, I've heard that objection a lot. Uh, and yeah, that's a big one, you know, doing something. I'll, sometimes I'll, I will draw and paint when I'm, when I'm listening to, to podcasts and things. Um, or walking or yeah, things like that. Yeah. Well, honestly, I mean, I have a, I have a 20 minute commute every day walking to school one way. Yeah. And it's perfect. Like I can listen to a chapter from a book and, you know, and just enjoy the book, especially with the fiction. Like I'm just being read a story, you know, right. It's great. Right. Which is a lost, uh, I think we're losing that ability to listen to stories. I think we talked about that. Uh, I don't think so. Well, like, you know, like when we're in, when we're in mass, you know, people, people can't just sit there and, be told a story of our salvation history from the scriptures. Hmm. They have to hold, you know, their little missalette or, you know, whatever. Their phone. Yeah. You know, more and more I find people are less able to just sit there and absorb. You know, homilies are different, right? That's more usually more instructive. Mm -hmm. Um, But like how much of the story do you actually remember when it comes time for the homily? Oh, I never remember anything. See? See? So, yeah, I think being able to to listen and to absorb and retain is is fleet is going away. Yeah. No, I feel I feel that. I feel that. Um, yeah, but these long-form books have been really great. Uh The other thing that's been helpful for me with my memory is the the Lenten practice that I decided to do. Uh-huh. Um to write down everything that I do every day. <laughs> Ooh, you didn't tell me about this. Uh, I think I did. Remember it was about the examine? Did you not remember this? Okay. So I, I <laughs> Yeah, I See people don't remember things that you tell them. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you should write it down next time. Uh, I decided to start I, I really struggle with praying the examination uh every day. Uh-huh. And I decided that part of the problem is that when I sit down, I spend too much time struggling to remember what mm. i have done mm. that day mm-hmm. um and it's kind of embarrassing because it's like how much could you possibly do in a day to right. what i started to realize is that all things being equal i think i do a lot in a day mm-hmm. because i wake up at five every day and so Ugh. i get a lot done well before you're ever awake Ugh. i mean um especially since you wake up on the east coast on the west coast so for you it's like by the time you're awake i've already been doing yeah. stuff for a good six hours yeah um yeah. So anyway, so I started writing things down um, sequentially throughout the day of what I've done. You know, I woke up at this time, had breakfast as usual, um, prayed as usual, um, 
spent time on Twitter, texted with Jonathan, um, you know, sequentially through, then showered mm-hmm. as normal, dressed as normal, and just write all these things down. And then, mm-hmm. and then when I do sit down, if I sit down to be able to do my exam at the end of the day, um, I have a list that I can just run through and be like, oh, that was, that's what my day was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot easier. And actually, it's helping me with my memory, too, because it's helping me keep track of things. Yeah, well, you know, there's science behind this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now for the Jonathan Harmon science corner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, no, the David Allen's Getting Things Done book is all about that. You know, the OmniFocus model of productivity, which is to anytime you have an idea or just something that you need to remember, you write it down. So that your brain power is now being used for other things instead of trying to remember that thing hmm. for later use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, your memory is improving, not because it's like getting, uh, you know, more whatever, getting bigger or whatever, but that you're actually refocusing your your mental energy hmm. into other things instead of trying to remember what you did today. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It's a good exercise. I it, it relates to the exercise of time tracking, but I've never been able to do time tracking effectively. Uh-huh. Um, I've never understood how to do it well. This is sort of an, a better middle position of just like yeah. writing down things that I've done. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that more in theory. Like I would like to be able to do that, but I know that I will never be able to do that. Just write down what you've done? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's, and maybe that's something that I need to pick up um, pick up and just why do. would it why is it so hard for you uh i don't know <laughs> well, then how do you know it's how do you know it's difficult for you that just seems like something that well okay so here's a funny story mm-hmm. you know this my lenten practice that i've been very excited about uh i don't remember <laughs> my, my skulls oh yeah <laughs> do you know how long it's been since i've drawn a skull <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we're on day like 20 or something of Lent. And yeah. It's been at least 10 days. Yeah. So I'm way behind. Uh, so I will, <sighs> I will catch up. I will catch up. Okay. Um, I have a, I have a suggestion for you. Tell me. I think that you should do one picture to catch up where you have a pile of skulls. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. And that way it's like, hey, one, one for 10. 10 for yeah. 1. Well, so actually what one of the things that I'm going to start doing, because it, it does kind of get boring drawing the same thing in the same way, all of these different ways. Okay. What are so, different ways? Well, slow down. Hold on. Let me tell you. <laughs> so mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. thinking uh, I will start using some different like texture brushes and shape brushes and try to get, not to get like more abstract, but just to get a different feel with each of the if each of the new skulls that's good have you so have like you just... it would be this it would be similar to one day i'm drawing in pencil one day i'm painting in acrylic one day i'm doing oil one day you know right something right. like or one day i'm making a collage cutting things out you know Ooh. so i'm have kind you of taking that about like... into the digital world i like that you could also like take from inspiration some inspiration from different cultural images of skulls like yeah the day of the dead in mexico like skulls are everywhere yeah well you didn't uh you don't seems like you don't follow me because i did that you did one that had a crown on it nope well that and that came from i don't know francis borgia oh 
No, I did. I did a uh, like a Sugar Skull Day of the Dead kind of a thing. One of the last ones that I did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did see that. Um, I did see that. No, and then actually, I have been pulling inspirations not just from like paintings, but uh, one of the last ones I did was from a music video, uh, hmm. and it had some really cool effects on it that don't translate to a black and white drawing. But yeah, you got to get back on this horse, man. Yep. You do realize the longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. It's true. Well, part of the problem, David, is that I've been in Los Angeles all week. Oh, are you? Oh, that's right. You're on spring break. <laughs> yeah, spring break. Uh, and one of our friends who used to live in Toronto with you and I decided it would be fun. Well, a couple of things. It would be fun just to get away. You know, uh-huh. we spend too much time in our bubble, as you described. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. getting away is something that we all need to do. Mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So went down to Los Angeles, but also to check up on one of our friends who finished here in December. Okay. And he now lives down in LA. Yeah. He was ordained a priest last summer and spent his first, basically his first semester as a priest in Berkeley and then was assigned down to a parish in, in Los Angeles. Nice. So yeah, we wanted to just go see how he's doing. Uh, I'm really excited to see, you know, a young priest engaging in parish life. Cause that's going to be me next year. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was weird though. Have you, I mean, you've been to Los Angeles. Yeah. At least for, at least for our little villa days. Um, so it's a weird place. Like, and honestly, it reminded me more of Texas than Northern California. Yeah, buddy. It's a lot like, like Houston. Yeah. Like the Hispanic influence is everywhere. Yeah. It's and not just like, that, but the multicultural, like you'll go in and all of a sudden the signs will be in Korean. All oh, of yeah. a sudden the signs will be in Armenian. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot like Houston. I mean, those two cities are very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised by that. This was my first time like actually engaging with the city. Oh, cool. You know, the other times we were either on LME's campus or we were down at the beach. Mm-hmm. And you did, we didn't really explore the city anymore. Right. Much. So when I when I did my pilgrimage there, I ended up in East Los Angeles uh, for my uh, time at Homeboy Industries. But one of the days, I went walking from Homeboy all the way to Hollywood. Hmm. And I don't remember in my mind, in my memory, it was like a whole day walking, but I can't uh-huh. remember actually how far that is. I don't know if you have your computer in front of you if you can check, but. Um, I remember like walking through Skid Row and like walking through downtown and walking all the way to Hollywood, which was really cool to get to know the city that way. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. And we had some really interesting, um, encounters. We went out with some, um, with some college friends of yours. No, from, of, uh, of Alex's mm-hmm. and we did one of my favorite things. And I think one of your favorite things too. You we had ate, some sushi? Well, we did that the day before. Mm-hmm. We went out for all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue. Oh, my God. That's so delicious. <laughs> yeah. It was so good. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was epic by itself. But then we did a thing that I really don't like. You went to a museum? No, I like that, David. <laughs> we went to a place that has karaoke. Ooh. And you don't like that? I really don't like karaoke. Okay, hold on. Before you tell me about the karaoke, I just Googled it and it's 
<laughs> my memory doesn't serve me right because it was a <laughs> it was a two and a half hour walk. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, I thought it was like literally the whole day. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good walk. <laughs> it was a good walk. I remember that. And I after that walk, I went back to the community and I spent the next five days in bed because I got mono. Ooh, yeah. Well, I'm <clears throat> sure there's a story behind that. Yeah, well, I was in Hollywood. When you're in Hollywood, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so tell me is. about the karaoke experience. Why don't you like it? Well, I don't really like singing. Just oh, in that's general. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Ah. Uh, and okay, the fact that I'm not good at it probably has a lot to a lot to do with that. But you do realize that's part of the karaoke is to be terrible at it. Yes, I do realize that. Mm-hmm. And I will say, on that note. I was shocked. At how shocked, bad you are? Shocked, <laughs> shocked, I say. No, no, I knew that. But how not uncomfortable I was. Because, and here's, a, here's an interesting thing to think about. I've been doing a lot of um, things as a deacon that, put, oh, that yeah. puts me way, way, way outside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been being taking, in front of people. Yeah, and I've been taking this class on vocalizing theology. So, a lot is that of, class a preaching class? No, no, no. It's it's how to speak prayers well. Nice. But we do it's with an acting coach, and so we do all of these weird acting exercises and and whatnot. So even though you're not a good singer, you didn't feel as uncomfortable as you yeah were in the past. yeah yeah yeah. Because I'm think well, and probably just because I'm thinking about the ways in which I communicate verbally to people, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which is interesting because we did three years at and Regency. Like, why didn't teaching high school give me these same tools and awareness? Yeah, I think part of the reason, if I were to just uh, off the cuff, I think is because you spent most of the day talking to children. <laughs> yeah. Like you hardly ever talked to the faculty. And if right. you ever did, you did have a little bit of a discomfort of talking yeah. to a whole room of adults. Yeah, no, that's true. It's like when you're talking to a room full of 13-year-olds, it's like, okay, well, I don't really care what you think of me. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. You're there growing. A, yeah. How about that? <laughs> Formation works. What? <laughs> yeah. So, so that was better than I expected. Not, still not my favorite thing in the world to do. Okay. I got I got to say as a parenthesis here, I do find it very interesting that you and I are so different because <laughs> like the ways in which you have grown are things that I didn't necessarily need to grow in. Like <laughs> like speaking in front of a group of people, like I'm totally fine with that. You know, performance type stuff, I'm totally fine with yeah. that. But the things that I needed to grow in are things that you just do quite naturally. Like <laughs> you're a really good listener. You're mm-hmm. really good at being patient. You're really good at being calm. You know, you're really good at, you know, being a helper and not always needing to be in the front and center. Like you're good at those things. I'm not. Yeah. Like for yeah. me, I have no perspective on those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find that fascinating. It's like well, it we, is... we have very different weaknesses and very different strengths. But look at how we were both formed artistic, just speaking artistically. Like you with music is much more performative than my art is. Yeah, that's true. Like I make stuff and put it on the internet sometimes. You know. <laughs> yeah. You, How's that you, YouTube channel going? <laughs> ugh, let's not let's not go there. Uh, and you are you were formed as a performer. That's in, true. In band, in concerts, and things. 
That's right. That's right. It's what I do. So um, have you ever thought about doing performance uh, painting? <laughs> you know, those like <laughs> standing in front of a room with an easel upside down and no, you <laughs> no, not at throwing all. paint on it and then magically throwing it upside down. And it being no, not at all. The <laughs> closest the closest thing that I would consider doing and I have actually considered doing this and I, I do think that it would be a good idea would to be would be would to, to host be. <laughs> would. OK. See, now you're making me self-conscious. Okay, okay. Uh, would be to um, to do one of those, like, get a parish together, drink wine, and paint a picture. <laughs> and paint a picture together? Like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those... Like a mural? No, 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 no. Like, individual can't... Like, this happens all the time. People do this, apparently, for fun. Okay. Where, like, you have somebody come in and walk you through, a, uh, like, a simple painting. Yeah, a, landsca- a landscape or something. What's funny is that it's like it's introverts being introverted near each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like a communal thing. You go there and you sip on your wine, and it's a, it's about talking to your friends. But oh yeah, you're also doing this creative thing. Uh, I see. I see. I so see. like you would come out with your own painting of a landscape or of whatever mm. at the end of the night. I see. I see. Yeah, that'd be cool. When you're pastor at your parish in Denver next year, you should do that. Well, I won't be pastor, but I will try to do something like that. Oh, yeah. You're going to be like the associate. Yeah. The parochial vicar. Ooh, the vicar. Here comes yeah. the vicar. Cool, man. So uh, did you have any art experiences in LA that were I fun? did. Yeah. So a bunch, actually. Um, I was shocked at a number of things. Ooh. Some things that we've already talked about on our podcast before. So I did a little... Uh, cathedral comparison if you will oh (laughs) you sent me pictures of this yeah so right by loyola high where i was staying is this really incredible greek orthodox cathedral Mm -hmm. uh, saint sophia wow that's a beautiful name yeah and the place honestly shocked me and i'm really excited to show some of these pictures to my um to my orthodox professor uh, for this vocalizing theology class, just to see what he thinks about it. Is it because, possible to put these in the show notes? Uh, yeah, pr- probably. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll put some pictures up. But it is not what I th- expected. It's not what I've ever seen in an Orthodox church before. Hmm. The paintings were more naturalistic, like the icons. They were what you would find in a in a Western church. Huh. Uh, so they're more realistic. They were more um there's perspective they, there's shadow yeah 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 they were less like you know how icons have kind of a list of things that they have to have for this right. saint and for that saint right and um, they're usually flat and there's yeah very yeah depth. yeah and so there were some of those of that style but they were very small and up in the dome so you could hardly see them hmm. uh another thing that was weird was that they were not at eye level so most of the Orthodox churches that I've been to, almost all of the icons are at eye level. Yeah. So that you you have a very real sense of this is the communion of saints worshiping with us, mm. not up there looking down on us. As typically, it is usually in the West. Yeah. Typically, the higher you go in a church, in an Orthodox church, that's where you start to get um, like angels and, you know, the patriarchs and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the lower you get, you get is more the like... The people that we know, like the the patron of the church or right, right. something like that. 
And so you were stunned by this place because it was just overwhelmingly beautiful or like it ornate? Was, or? It was very beautiful. It was wall-to-wall stuff. So very busy. But not busy in a like stuffy way? It was. So I liked it. The guy that I was with did not. He He was saying things like he was getting confused by it. Not confused like I don't know what's going on, but just like lost. Well, is, well, that's interesting word choice. I mean, isn't isn't there something about being lost in the mystery well, that is valuable? I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, there's something about like the Western sympathy where everything needs to be prescriptive. Like there's right, right. You know these these six images were intentionally picked and positioned in this right. way to get you to like to kind of force well, you to think about something in a certain way. Well, to contrast it with the the cathedral in Los Angeles. The Catholic one? Yeah, which is exactly that. You know, it's this huge empty space of Mm. tile and marble uh, with very, 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 very beautiful tapestries of all the saints. Not all the saints, but a lot of the saints. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're all kind of facing towards the altar. Um, So very intentionally, we are focusing we're looking at these paintings, but it's leading us towards the altar. Okay. Yeah. Really yeah. great. But it's so, I almost hate to say it, but it's kind of one dimensional hmm. where you're forced to lead, to be led this way. Whereas in an Orthodox church, there's a focus, you know, there's, glory. there's glory. action, there's action happening, right? but, but you, the- you're led throughout the entire church to get there. Yeah. I, I guess. I keep using the word glory because there's something about uh, like an orthodox space like that that's overrun with imagery that it's like, but it's also gilded. Everything has mm-hmm. has a, a luminosity to it that that shines and that, you know, you get a sense of the grandeur of the mystery of God, but there's still the iconostasis. And so there's a mystery that's a hiddenness, but it's all brilliant. And I don't know, it's an overwhelming sensation that I find is not always present in our very contemporary worship spaces that the mm-hmm. the opposite is the case it's not a focus on glory per se but there's sort of a focus on the person like yeah on on the community but also like the simplicity of not being too overrun by images and yeah yeah there's a fear of distraction perhaps hmm. that these that these will take us from what's what's real and okay i i'll i will buy that to an extent like the eucharist is our is our ultimate focus at at liturgy at mass uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but it just can be stifled i think when yeah when there's nothing else surrounding that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah one of our good friends used to say that the, when the eucharist is the source the summit and everything in between then what are we left with you know there's mm. there's there's not the, where, where's our devotional life where's the where's the stuff that gives context yeah yeah no there's a great um uh, Orthodox, well, he's a Jesuit, but an uh, Orthodox scholar, Robert Taft, who just recently died, who in describing the Byzantine liturgy, uh, he, he described it as a banquet. Hmm. So like Sunday, Sunday liturgy, Sunday mass is like, well, the Eucharist itself is like the main course of a seven, you know, whatever, seven course dinner. Hmm. If you just go for that, that's still pretty good. Like you're getting your, you know, you're getting your prime rib, 
<laughs> but you miss out on literally everything else that leads up to that. Yeah, that's so fair enough. The, so in the Orthodox world, you know, they begin with Vespers the night before and Orthros before Divine Liturgy, hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is part of their worship. Whereas right. we go and we're, you know, we, we get upset when it goes over an hour. Yeah. Rightly so, I think. <laughs> sometimes it goes... See, here's... I, I've had this experience in my parents' home parish um, where the Mass weekly is about an hour and 15 minutes. And I never notice because yeah. the priest isn't doing anything that's infuriating. <laughs> um, like, he's never just adding things on to add them on. Yeah. He, the reason Mass goes long is because on a Sunday on a Sunday Mass... He usually is chanting everything. Everything yeah. is chanted, and he uses incense for everything. And like, it's not this like adding on time because the priest wanted to give me a third homily, right? Um, right. And that's you know, usually so, what happens. Like, right. And that's when I start getting impatient about a mass that's longer than an hour. It's like, okay, as long as you're being efficient with the time and you're using the time wisely, then mm -hmm. go as long as you need. Yeah. But if it's like, I can tell that I'm never going to get these three minutes back because you wanted to have a second thought in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer. like <laughs> Yeah. You know, but by contrast, the, the Orthodox is like, Mass is like three hours. You know? mm -hmm. And it is more kind of, it's a little bit looser. You know, we, mm -hmm. we in the West are very strict with, I will sit in my pew for one hour and then I will get up and leave. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the, in the East, people are up and down going in and out the entire time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're much yeah. more relaxed with that kind of a thing. Yeah. I was really struck when you sent me those pictures because there's a real contrast with how those cathedrals look. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. I haven't been inside a, a very ornate church like that in a long time because uh, yeah. most of our worship spaces are very stark. They're very stark. And, you know, so, again, going back to this, um, this so I sent you one picture of Loyola High beautiful campus it's like going into hogwarts or something mm. like it's very old looking uh and their chapel is really gorgeous but like they've got really cool stained glass windows they've got um just the aesthetic of it is very nice but the walls are blank mm. and that really bugs me for some reason mm. well not for some reason i know why uh why well, I realized some, something a little a little while ago that, you know, we tend to be lopsided in our understanding of sacred art. Like if you were if you were to I dare say if you were to pull the average Catholic or Christian for that matter, what they immediately thought of with sacred art, they would say some sort of music. Hmm. Like I was thinking the Sistine Chapel. Well, so that's the other extreme. Like you've got these super ornate Eastern churches and old Roman churches like the Sistine Chapel who are covered wall to wall with art, you know, the Baroque where the architecture and the artwork is blending in weird ways. I'm right, not sure right. where one ends and one begins. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas today all of our artistic expression seems to be focused solely on music, hmm. on having good worship songs. Yeah. Which is fine. Like you need that. But we've traded one extreme for the other. Hmm. And me, as a visual person, I get, I get kind of antsy and upset when I, when I don't have a visual anything. Right, right. Uh, hmm. You know, where there are two visual 
the visual art and the sacred mu- sacred art and sacred music are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Uh, and I've used this example where we've kind of super glued the coin to a wall to where we only have one <laughs> side and we've given up on the other. Dang. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Um, no, I like that. I like that. You know, my, my, this is kind of a tangent, but one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of visual uh, stimuli in churches, the, the one ingredient in visual stimuli that I think is often under emphasized or, or badly used, um, even in churches that are very ornate, even in churches that have a lot of decoration, there's one ingredient that I think is always badly used. Do you know what it is? Uh, the stations. No, I don't mean particular pieces. I mean an ingredient of sort of like visual uh, mm-hmm. experience. Uh, uh, lack of the mosaics, most fundamental, the the, mo- the most fundamental experience, which is light. Um, mm, mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have found, generally speaking, that most of our churches, even the more ornate ones, fail miserably when it comes to lighting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and honestly, I don't mean that they're too dark. I think oftentimes they're way too bright. Yeah. Yeah. There's no uh, ambiance. It's sort no of ambience. you're you're in a doctor's waiting room, yeah, or examination also, room. Yeah, and also all of the works of art on the that are decorations then just get flooded with lights, and then yeah. they lose they lose their color. They get flushed out with all this you know luminosity, and I don't know. I just found like the cathedral here in Toronto was recently renovated, and I think it's a very beautiful space with a lot of really beautiful artwork. But I find that the the lighting is overwhelming. Yeah, um, and not in a way that's like makes me think of God's glory. It's overwhelming in a sense of like, it makes me feel like someone should turn the lights down. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and you know, we used to, we used to be better at, at uh, kind of, con- if you want to say, controlling the light with stained glass. Like you control mm-hmm. the temperature of the room by putting either warm or cool glass where the sun is going to hit. Mm. Uh, and you can, and you can, literally establish different levels of warmth in different parts of the church by what kind of windows you put in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had, I have two thoughts on that. One is simple is that the book that I just finished reading that I mentioned last time is all about the building of a medieval cathedral. Uh-huh. Um, and it's right at the, cru- at the cusp of like introducing stained glass where stained glass prior to that had not been a thing. Uh-huh. Um, there's some really good sections on that. But the other thing I was going to say is I was talking to one of the guys uh, who was with me in uh, Quebec City. We were visiting Quebec. And the cathedral there is really beautiful. And the sanctuary is covered in gold and like this magnificent, um, you know, decorations and all these pieces. But the lighting in there is another good example where they just shine mm. all of this light mm. on the gold. And it doesn't, it doesn't flicker with, you know, with ambiance. It doesn't flicker with, you know, the the shininess of the gold, all it does is just kind of flood it out where it looks like yellow, just yellow surfaces. Yeah, um, yeah, that's gross. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that he was pointing out is that, and maybe this is too fine a point, I don't know, but maybe a theological statement is that before we used to depend on natural lighting and mm-hmm. now we've chosen to mm. light things on our own. Yeah. Um, and maybe what does that say about our relationship to God in terms of, our created light sources are what we use to illumine our churches and we're right. in control of that rather right. than allowing God to be in control of that. Yeah. We've, we've replaced Christ the light with us, the light. Yeah. 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 With, uh, what is it? Those Phillips, uh, those Phillips, the home, hue, 
the hue lights yeah the, <laughs> yeah. yeah at the at the easter vigil someone's gonna be chanting you know to turn on the lights and to <laughs> as opposed to the easter candle Ugh, yeah any other cool day. art experiences in uh in la uh well i went to the getty museum which i had never really been to before is that the one with the with the ancient stuff the ancient stuff like ancient ancient uh, uh greek stuff uh maybe they had this cool exhibit on um some french painter i can't remember his name oh, okay, i'd never no, heard no. of him before but he did this really cool image of the visitation hmm. uh and so they're talking about but one of the really cool things that this that they were doing is really something that i've never seen before they had an entire exhibit on drawings hmm. like the things that artists do before they start on the thing that you usually see in the museum so like their sketches and yeah, their exercises yeah. yeah so you're seeing the process you're seeing the work that they put in to get to the final product hmm. and I, I i mean as somebody that draws and paints i find that to be incredibly fascinating because you get to see the way the thought process and yeah, how that works yeah you're, you're literally seeing them think uh, hmm. visually. I, yeah, I like that. It's also surprising to me when I see that it's not just the final product. Like, I often <laughs> think that, oh, they just, you know, Da Vinci yeah. just took a paintbrush and took it to canvas, and then all of a sudden you have the Last Supper. Like, yeah, yeah. Nope. It went through many, many iterations, and I'm sure he tore up canvases that he couldn't get right. Wow. Well, I, isn't that a fresco? Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> he probably had he probably had some canvas that he was working on. Oh, the Mona Lisa, yes. Which I've never seen. Have you seen that? Nope. Isn't that in Europe somewhere? <laughs> yeah, it is in Europe somewhere. I've never been to Europe. <laughs> you know, uh I saw a story recently about the 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 soldiers that recovered the Mona Lisa after the Nazis were expelled from Paris. Uh-huh. Um, because they ransacked a lot of the museums and they took a lot of the pictures. Um, and the Mona Lisa was rediscovered later. And so there was an image that I saw of them unpacking the paintings and someone finding the Mona Lisa. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of cool. That's kind of like that story of the Caravaggio that was found in the Irish Jesuits refectory. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> they just happened to have this original Caravaggio. Caravaggio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where I eat breakfast. There's yeah. a Caravaggio just sitting there. <laughs> and nobody even knows it. <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm glad your trip went really well. Yeah, it was great. It was refreshing, rejuvenating. You know, I'm not necessarily excited to get back to schoolwork, but... Oh, you're because you're still on spring break? Yeah, yeah. I've actually got a test on Tuesday that I need to start studying for. What? Ooh. So. Cool, cool. Well, I think this has been a good end to our second season. Are we done? Is this really happening? I think we're done with our second season. Although we'll probably be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Let's <laughs> in, be in no time. Um, <laughs> but no, just to put you know put a pin in it for now, and then come back a little later. Maybe uh, publish something in May or June, just to make sure that we keep our one or two fans you know <laughs> satisfied. Yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> All right, buddy. So right. what is it? What is it that we say? Uh, see you later. I guess. Uh, okay. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. So we'll be in touch. Yeah. All right, dude. Peace. Hey, bro. Cheers.